Welcome to the Passive Mobile Home Park Investing Podcast with your host, Andrew Keel. This is the podcast where you can get the education you need to invest 100% passively in the highly profitable niche of mobile home parks. Welcome to the Passive Mobile Home Park Investing Podcast. This is your host, Andrew Keel. And today we have an amazing guest in Mr. Glenn Esterson, the MHP expert. But before we dive in, I want to ask a real quick favor. Would you mind please taking an extra 30 seconds and heading over to iTunes to rate this podcast with five stars? This helps us get more listeners, and it means the absolute world to me. So thanks for making my day with that review of the show. All right, let's dive in. Glenn is passionate about the mobile home park space. He has been a commercial real estate broker since 2001 and bought his first manufactured home community in 2004. He has sold hundreds of mobile home parks nationwide and continues to be one of the industry's most active brokers. He is also the author of the Mobile Home Park Manifesto, a book on ethical and profitable investing in non-institutional grade land lease communities. Glenn, welcome to the show. Uh, Thank you, Andrew. Glad to be here. Awesome. Maybe you can start out by telling our listeners a little about your story and how you got into manufactured housing. Sure. So, I mean, right now we're we're nearing our thousandth park for for that that we've sold. It's friggin' nuts. Wow. You know, that's that's a lot. We did a hundred parks. You know, we I think we've done eighty six parks this year so far. You know. Wow. Um, yeah, it's, it's a lot. A lot of them are portfolios and stuff like that. But you know, I I got into this world very reluctantly because no one else would have me. You know, twenty years ago. You know, I, I wanted to do like everybody else, you know, sell apartments and stuff like that. I was kind of down on my down on my luck way back when. And uh, my dad's friend showed me how he was operating some apartment buildings, some, you know, class F, you know, crap down in, you know, Miami. That was not the prettiest stuff. And, uh, you know, but I loved it. This guy was so cool and he was making money and showing me how he was helping these tenants get, you know, you know, a solid foundation in life. And, you know, his rents were the cheapest in Miami and all that kind of stuff. And I, and I really dug it. After a year or so of working with him just loosely, he said, go get your license and let's start making you some money. So I went and got my license and started renting, you know, apartments for him and getting, you know, a month's rent every time I rented a uniform. And I was renting two or three units a day at 25 years old before I knew it, I was making some decent money. You know, I just had a baby and stuff like that, you know, and um, it was it was meaningful, very meaningful to me. And after after a little while with him, he said, hey, why don't you sell this building? Why don't you sell this building? took me like five seconds to sell these buildings, you know, and, uh, you know, I, I went through the learning curve and I said, oh, this is pretty awesome. A few years after doing that, I had some money in my pocket finally. And I said, I'm out of here. I'm retiring. And I hung my hat up. You know, I had uh, not much money. It was just, you know, something very little money, big money to me at the time. And I went and bought a farm, which was my, my passion for most of my life is being a farmer. And so uh, I bought a farm in North Carolina and, and, full throttled it there trying to make a living being a farmer. And after about a decade, I realized my best year was like 25, 30 grand. And so it wasn't, wasn't doing me so well. Luckily, the one thing that kept me surviving was I had took that money I made in Miami and I bought a small little park in Eastern Tennessee, about, you know, 30, 40 minutes from, from my farm. It was just a small park, 30 something, 35, 40 units. And uh, it was all park owned homes and it was, you know, good old fashioned, you know, you know, uh, bottom level type of stuff there. It was, you know, I, you know, hookers and meth heads and, you know, all sorts of everything you don't want in your park. 
And nobody told me nothing about this stuff back then. There was not a single resource out there, you know, back then. And at least that I could find, you know, I didn't even have internet yet at my farm, you know, so it was, uh, you know, it was all, it was all learning curve for me. And I just jumped in, got my butt kicked in it for a couple of years, had, you know, a lot of, a lot of rough times, a lot of crazy stories. I mean, like there was a TV show out for a while that, you know, kind of emphasized the worst of parks. Well, my park was worse than that, you know, and uh, it was, you know, police officers there, daily fights in the, you know, in the courtyards and things like that. Eventually I said, enough's enough. How do I turn this thing? And uh, I found this really, this really cool guy. His name was also Glenn. He was about 85 years old. And he just happened to have been the only old timer out there that knew how to turn a park. And he said, oh, you got to you got to sell off the homes or give away the homes and you got to do X, Y and Z. And I said, you're crazy. You know, I'm not doing that. And uh, and finally, finally, during the 2009 kind of, you know, 2009, 2010, I said, OK, I can't have it anymore. I, I got to do something about it. And called the guy back up. He came and helped me. And within a year, I had the whole park turned and said, oh, this makes sense now. And a few years later, I sold it. And during that 2013 era, I said, you know, I'm, I, I think I got something here. I think I'm going to you know, broker these deals and uh, moved off the farm and moved to Atlanta and got lucky with Marcus and Millichap. They were willing to hire me and give me a shot because, you know, I, I, I told them a good story, I guess. And uh, finally, for the first time in my life, I started feeling like, oh, wow, I'm a grown up now and I'm doing big boy job and I'm, and I'm making some real money. And it took a couple of years to, you know, get some ground. But, you know, here we are today. And uh, it was it was a story of reluctance getting into it, but now now I just love this stuff, you know. And, and you know, I I speak all over the place about this industry, and you know, I've, I've helped you know thousands of people, and you know, my book has sold thousands and thousands of copies. And it's uh, you know, it's all about the little guy, you know. Like I mean, the institutions they know what they're doing, you know. Like you know, we're not trying to help the institutions any more than necessary right now. I'm trying to help guys that are first coming into this business. Who don't have a solid ground, but have a couple of bucks and want to make a difference in life for themselves, and without without jamming rent growth down, you know, eighty five year old ladies, you know, kind of budget, you know, because that's that's just not going to work. And so we we really emphasize, you know, how how to increase profits without hurting your your poor tenants, you know, because you know we've seen a lot of rent growth the last five years, and some of it's totally reasonable, and some of it is almost a little unfair. And you know, the way that me and my team emphasize upside it's it's all about you know fill your fill your vacant homes first and fill your vacant lots and go for the expansion keep your legacy tenants pretty flat maybe you grow them at three percent but your new tenants you can go and get you know full market rent on and yeah your upside takes a little bit longer but it's a more stable amount of income that you're generating that way without hurting the feelings and ending up in the press and all that kind of stuff when you go for that 200 hundred dollar rent increase upon close because you over stated the expectations with your investors who are giving you your money to buy the deal about hitting a 10% return. So, you know, I, I don't like that. I was the poorest guy on the block forever, you know? And so, I mean, I remember what a $50 rent bump felt like to me. It was just, it was murderous almost, you know, for me back in the day. And times ain't any easier for people today. You know, if you're poor, it's really, really hard out there, you know? And, you know, I mean, there's, there's a something that you have to be cognizant of about that. And uh, I mean, if you're dealing with a highfalutin park, then fine. But, you know, for most most people listening to, to, to me speak are usually starting at the bottom and working their way up. And the people in their parks are even, you know, on a lower level, you know. And so your tenants are your most important possession at a park. You know, without them, you don't make money. So you better take care of them. 
And that's that's kind of how I emphasize what I do. And, and I think part of the reason why I've been so successful uh, in this industry. That's awesome, Glenn. And yeah, that's a great perspective coming at it from that angle, because there's a ton of value add to be had with those vacant lots. I mean, literally, you you drive through mobile home parks nowadays, and it's very common that a lot of these mom and pops are just leaving meat on the bone. They're just leaving these vacant lots. And, you know, it's, it's a little more, more elbow grease, right. To go in there and fill those lots, but the value's there, you know, it's, it's like one lot is going to rent for $400. Okay. Yeah. You know, one rent bump, you know, even if you're kind of a, you know, an aggressive rent pusher, what are you going to get $50? Okay. Yeah. You're going to get it across however many people, but you know, I mean, that's eight people to pay one lot, you know, right. So if you rent one lot at 400, that's, like you didn't have to raise rents on eight people, you know, for that $50 and it's more sticky income, you know, and that's really what you want to do. And it, it is a little scarier. It is a little harder. It is a little longer, but it's a better process in the end, you know, and, you know, as long as you're vetting your tenants, well, your, your legacy tenants are going to feel good about the new tenants coming in. They're going to see you kind of stamp where you're trying to go with everybody. And maybe it takes 10 years to get that legacy tenant up to market rent but that's, that's okay. That's okay. You know, as long as you've set expectations with your investors and you're not a pump and dump type of, you know, type of operator, that to me is the the more sustainable way to grow this industry. And for us to alleviate some of the regulations that we just see kind of coming down the pipeline that might get forced down our throats if, if we keep being aggressive as we have in the last few years. Yeah, no, definitely. I, I mean, I, I think rent increases definitely hold their place also. You know, I think a lot of these parks have not had rent increased in 10 plus years. Yeah. So I think there's a, a time and a place for everything. But yeah, making those improvements to make the, the property better, you yeah. know, is key. Put your and improvements in up front. Put them in up front. Raise exactly. the money up front for the roads, for the landscape, for the septics that need to get repaired. Put that in up front. Let your tenants see that yeah. you're putting in real money and then go hit them up for a three or 5% rent increase on your legacies. And again, feel free to get full rental market value out of your, your new tenants that are coming in. If, if the market's $600 and your tenants are only at $300, feel free to get $600 on your, on your new tenants. But you know, the grandma in number two, who's, you know, on Medicare or, you know, is getting a small check and all that kind of stuff every month. She can't handle a $200 rent increase. She can't handle that $200 rent increase. Even if you break it up over four years. Okay. You know, so you have to be cognizant of that. Uh, at least, at least in my world. Now, I'm kind of a bleeding heart, you know, so just, I might look at things a little differently. But to me, there's a way for everybody to accomplish their financial goals without it just being stuffing it down the poor guy's throat, you know. Um, in my for world, sure. you know, other no, people I, disagree with me. And yeah. that's okay, you know. Um, yeah. We all are allowed our own philosophies about this. But for me, that's how I feel better. When I bought my park, my rent's $75. No shit. Wow. $75, $75 a month. Wow. And my, my homes were renting for two fifty. Okay, so Jeez. you know, like I, I'm not just talking out of you know out of my butt. I'm, I'm being serious about this. My, by the time I sold my park 15 years later, my rents were were a measly two hundred dollars. Okay, you know, and so mm. I'm, I'm very cognizant of, of pushing rents. You know, because I know you can still be profitable. Do do the infill, do the upsides. You know, in a more productive way. Spend your money up front. Let the tenants know what you're doing. And be be transparent with them. Be like, hey, look, I'm going to be taking my rents up here over X amount of years, depending on your ability to be a good tenant and, you know, getting this park where it needs to be. I'm putting in all this money. 
This is what I'm doing. Here's all the competitors around me. And here's what they're currently charging. You're not going to necessarily get a better deal by going over there because they're going to get you for new rent as well as a new tenant. So let's work together and let's come up with a plan. And if you live it to your word, I'll live to my word. And that that seemed to resonate with my tenants once I got my park turned. Yeah, for sure. Tell me, Glenn, what do you think is the toughest hurdle for most operators in the mobile home park business? The, the investor expectations, they get they get glued to this to this idea of other people's money, you know. And, you know, it's almost like a drug to them. And they, 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 they set expectations probably too ambitiously with these investors. And they say, oh, we're going to hit, you know, a 20%, you know, five-year IRR or whatever number they're trying to hit. But the only way to really do that is by jamming rent growth. And I think that becomes an obstacle. Whereas if you had set different expectations with your investor base, you probably could have been a bit... Mm, you probably could have taken a little bit longer time to do it and probably done it without landing in the newspapers about, Oh, you know, John Doe's, you know, raising rent at his part by, you know, 200%, you know, without, without improvements. That's like the worst press. You you really don't want it. It ends up on the TV sometimes, you know, things like that. Um, so that to me, that's one of the biggest hurdles, but that's, you know, that's capitalism. It's okay. You know, but the next one I really think is around, you know, tenant vetting, you know, who you're letting move into your park, one bad tenant, it's like, it could be like a crack epidemic. You could have all perfectly good people in your park. You let one bag tenant in before you know it, you know, they're all on drugs and they're all doing bad stuff and they're revolting. I've lived through it. I know how it is. You see that big wad of cash in somebody's hand. And you're like, man, I could, I could really use some extra cash right now. And I, I need this, especially as a mom and pop, I need this revenue. And you, you make a poor judgment about a tenant and it ruins, ruins your tenant base. And then you're spending the next, you know, three, six, 12 months getting this guy out of your park and then cleaning up all of the, the damage that he, that, you know, he or she, you know, caused at the park, you know, and on, on that note, we got pretty, pretty clear about how important tenant vetting is. You know, we, we've seen, especially in small towns, you'll see people get evicted and just kind of like shuffled through all the parks, you know, like, Oh, Hey, this guy, he was here and now he's here and now he's there and now he's going there. And, you know, one of my friends, uh, a guy named Tom, you know, he, he had an idea. He was an eviction attorney. And he's like, I think we, I think there's a solution here to this thing. And, you know, he convinced me to invest with him. And now we have a great product out there called Rent Butter. It's one of the best tenant verification systems out there. And, you know, it's it's moving along nicely. So tenant vetting, I think, is an extremely critical part of your operational standpoint. Over-promising your investors, you know, is, is, you know, really just you're starting off on the wrong foot when you do that. So those two things together, if you solve that issue, in my opinion, the rest of your operational stands well, you usually go pretty well. I mean, obviously getting the right employees, putting the right people, you know, in the right seat on the right bus to help drive your machine, you know, is critically important. But, you know, a good operator usually has pretty intelligent people around them to put the right managers in the right spots and the right regional managers, you know, controlling the, the right divisions and things like that. Awesome. Tell us, as a broker, what things have you seen operators overlook and not account for in their pro formas? Depends on broker. I mean, there's some really good brokers out there. I mean, some some of my competition, they do a bang up job. You know, they really do. Uh, you know, we're meticulous. Our our thing on on underwriting is world class underwriting. Okay, we want to make sure it's bulletproof. Okay, so we tie everything back as much as we can. But sometimes these mom and pops don't have bank statements and stuff like that, or if they do, it's commingled. And then you have brokers that just kind of make guesses, and the logic isn't there, and they try to underwrite to. Hey, look, it's a seven cap, but not really telling you it's a 20% expense ratio, you know, and things like that, you know, 
I think it's really lack of experience for a lot of the brokers that don't underwrite correctly. Um, whereas us, we, we are consistently one of the lowest cap rate brokers out there. Like we're, in, you know, we, we get told all the time we're crazy about our cap rates. We just sold a, a park in PA, a fully stable park in PA for a 3.3 cap, you know, but that's really what it comes out to on that deal. Whereas some other brokers could have fudged it to make it look like five cap, but the buyers are smart nowadays and they're going to dig in and they're going to argue with you about, you know, about your pricing and, and about your logic and method with your underwriting you know we, we we do a lot of deals sub four cap we just closed one in wisconsin it was like a 3.6 cap you know also on a stabilized deal and that number to most people sounds insane but when you hear the story and you understand why today it's a three six cap and why tomorrow you know it will be a six cap then you can start seeing how the play you know how the motions play out but without having a defendable story and without having real understanding of all the, the, the pulleys and levers that are in, you know, in that deal to make this work and that work. And a lot of that has to deal with your debt, you know, that, you know, if I'm a, a new broker, I'm trying to target something that's attractive for a buyer to call me just so I can get somebody on the hook and then deal with set a, a retrade later on or something like that. Uh, and, you know, we set expectations pretty strongly with our sellers. You know, we, we, we always price, not always, but 95% of the time, always price our deals, you know, and we, we set the expectation. Well, let me ask you this, Glenn, let me ask you this. So what would be something that like maybe gets overlooked in, in, in the underwriting that's Cap X all the time. Cap, Cap X, X is always overlooked. Just like general uh, park equation. improvements, general yeah. park improvements, that kind of stuff. Okay. Park improvements, deferred maintenance. Uh, landscape, you know, stuff like that is always uh, is always pretending like, oh no, it's fine. Your roads are great. You never need to worry about. Oh no, the, the, the trees are fine. You don't need to, to deal with them. You know, that's that's always something we see. You know, people not account for in their pricing. You know, the debt equation is is a huge factor, and most of the time, you know, the brokers just oh, we're just going to throw a number out there without getting a true debt quote on this deal, and that's going to totally you know, manipulate your numbers by not having a proper debt quote that's achievable uh, because the debt is the basis of your return. I mean, it's, it's pretty straightforward, you know? Yeah, definitely. And so, you know, we go through all those processes to make sure management's often one, oh, well, this guy's managing himself, so we don't need a management fee, you know, thrown in here. Mm, yeah, but that's why you're at a 15% expense ratio, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and things like that, you know? So we normalize a mom and pop's uh, P&L because their P&L might just show taxes, insurance, and R&M. Okay. And uh, they might, you know, maybe there's utilities if, if they're, you know, you know, utilities there, but oftentimes with well and septic, they, they just pretend like that's not an expense that exists. And a lot of brokers do that too, you know? And so we normalize all that and add, you know, add an expense in where it's missing. And if the insurance is wicked low, you know, we'll take it up to where it needs to be. If taxes, we know are going to reset, we take them up. We call the municipalities. We figure out all that kind of stuff. And so, a lot of brokers don't do that. My my old my old mentor, a guy named Mike Pisano, he used to call that you know uh, lazy broker. You know, like the lazy brokerage. Uh, they just they just don't sit there and think through how the how the buyer is actually going to operate. And he he drove that into me when you know I was younger about you know just if you have impeccable underwriting, you'll do a lot of deals. And, For sure. Let me know, ask you this though, real quick. What what would you say? Because I'm going to circle back. You said expense ratios a couple times. What what are some common expense ratios that you're, you know, seeing and you're underwriting deals at? They typically, they typically are. You know, when you when you remove water and sewer out of the equation, 
okay? Because, you know, water and sewer, either going to be direct build or they're going to be built back or they're going to be included or it's just going to be a private utility system. So you have to understand kind of how these things play. But typically, we when you remove water and sewer, revenue and expense out of the equation, by the time you fully stabilize the park and got it up to full market rents and full market occupancy, I like to see that expense ratio somewhere around 30%, 30 to 35% maybe, depending on what market you're in. Like New York, it's going to be higher because your taxes are wicked. Same in California, you know. But in most markets, that 30-40 rule is going to apply, okay? And that's, you know, that's the mythology that's been taught for years, and it's actually true. Um, and you want to really pay attention to that. Your day one stuff, it might not necessarily be be reasonable. Like today, you know, yesterday I underwrote a deal 68% expense ratio. You know, well, it is what it is. You know, I mean, that's a real number for this guy. Uh, but by the time you get the rents where they need to be and you fix the occupancy and you fix the efficiencies, that pro forma with the water and sewer removed out should land around 30%. And guess what? It does. It lands at 32% on that deal, you know. And that's kind of what we're looking for. Um I'll, I, I have personally never taken a park out below 30% expense ratio because it's never closed, you know, ever, you know, like ever, you know. So for me, we just don't do it. We're, we're doing a deal right now in Georgia. Really nice deal. Sold it a few times. This guy's operating truly professionally from California at a 22% expense ratio. I know for a fact that that's a real number for this guy. And I know the next guy's going to operate around there too. But guess what? I'm kind of handcuffed to my 30% rule. So we have to, you know, we have to do that there. Now I'll take the cap rate down low, very low to offset that, but we'll have a discussion, you know, with the buyers about why it's this way and how it's, you know, and how it's working and things like that. Okay. So Glenn, as the MHP expert, what would you say are the most important things, passive investors, you know, we're talking LPs here. What are the most important things passive investors need to look out for when investing into mobile home parks? Oh, that's a good question. I love the LP side. I think it's the smartest side, you know, like the, I live off this, this rule I made up called time value headache, you know, and there is just nothing better than being an LP. You know, in my opinion, you get all the pass through depreciation, you get to sit here and yell at your, at your GPs about them not performing. You don't have to do any of the lift. You just have to sit there and cough up, you know, some money, some, you know, 20 grand, hundred grand, two fifty, whatever it might be to be, you know, in that seat. Um, but you get, you get, you know, no headache out of the, out of, Okay, you might lose your money if you pick the wrong, you know, the wrong operator. Um, but, uh, you know, to me, that's a smart, smart, smart investment. Okay, I'm an LP in a bazillion things, not, not in MH, but in you know, plenty of other businesses, uh, because it allows me to get the income without having to do the work, essentially. You know, and I, and I go out and spend my time doing, doing the work that I do. Um, so what I look for in an LP, you know, as an LP in my operator is, hey, do I get along with you? Okay. Are you returning my calls? Are you sending me reports? Okay. Are you really being transparent with me? Or are you just feeding me the fluff? Because I don't, you know, I, it, I don't want the hopeful dreamer stuff. You know, I, I want the real deal. Like you're, you're pitching, this is going to be a 5X, but is it really going to be a 5X or is it going to be more like a one and a half X when it's all said and done? I want, I want to know what I'm getting into. Um, if I was an MH investor, I would be very, very cautious about who I'm giving my money to. There's a lot of new groups coming in promising, you know, some, some big stuff and they haven't been through a down cycle yet. Okay. Um, and we're pretty frothy out there right now. And I mean, like we started off the conversation, they're setting expectations with their investors that are pretty high. And I would be cautious of that. 
And I'd be looking at some of the groups that have been around for a hot minute that have a, you know, a pretty large portfolio uh, that seems to be on the right track. But I'd be okay with just getting a 15%, you know, return on, on, on the deal, you know, and, you know, and getting a six pref or something like that, which I know sounds low to some people. But for guys like me, that, hey, if I trust you, if I like you and you have performance track record, I'm totally fine with the 6% return on my money and maybe a 15%, you know, back end. Okay. Like to me, that's time value headache right there. Right. Now, if it's a new guy and he's like, Oh, I'm going to give you 20% and I'm going to give you a 9% pref. I'm going to sit there and scratch my head a little bit. Like mm-hmm. uh, it's a nice kid, but you know, I think, you know, I think I'm taking on too much risk here. So, you know, I, I, I kind of bounce, you know, I'd be bouncing back and forth through there. And, and some of these operators out there that I know that I talk to every day, they're amazing great operators and you know oddly those are the guys that typically don't need to raise too much money you know the money's just always coming to them right but and some of them pay decent you know obviously uh, but most of them are going to be on that lower range that i was telling you about but you can probably rest easier at night knowing that your money's in good hands you know there's a couple of groups that are brand new and right now they're on fire they're doing great you know like wow impressive stuff you're going to make some real money uh, but again i'm cautious because they haven't been through a down cycle they haven't hit a real hurdle they haven't sit there and said, uh-oh, all the septics are bad. Uh-oh, the lagoon that we just bought, there's no way to convert it over to the city. You know, and they haven't handled a really hard, you know, uh, issue yet. And as an investor, I want to see my GPs handle a hard issue, overcome it. And then all of a sudden, my 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 trust, trust value in them was an eight. Now it's all of a sudden, you know, a nine or a 10 because they were able to overcome that objection, you know. Um, so... You know, I mean, that's that's kind of me. I wouldn't say it's for everybody, but for me, you know, like five, six, seven percent returns don't scare me. To me, that seems like safe money. Yeah, no, I think that's some great advice for the listeners. Glenn, tell us, what does the perfect mobile home park look like in your eyes and why? Like the one I just sold that that one up in, in PA it was a beautiful deal. It's called Shadowstone, uh, Shadowstone Village. It's in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. 188 spaces all retirement, all double wide, all direct build utilities, beautiful homes, beautiful streets, zero pain on that deal, okay? And the rents, they will grow over time slowly. If, if I'm a 20-year investor, I'm making, I'm making a pile of money on that deal by the time I'm ready to exit again. And I'm having the easiest time imaginable because it's really, a, you know, uh, like a cash flow mailbox money type of thing at that point. And yes, I'm coming into it at 3.3 cap. Not the greatest, still better than my Amex high yield savings, right? So, and that's to me is fine, especially if I'm investing out of my SEP account and putting my money into a deal like that that's now growing tax free and my returns coming in. And in 10, 15, 20 years, I have a beautiful, beautiful park. That park sold for, you know, eight, you know, 18 and a half million plus or minus and uh, 100,000 a lot. If that's what it is today, I can't even imagine what that's going to be, you know, in five, 10, 15, 20 years. And I'm going to look, like a genius, you know, then because I beat out the market today, that seemed like I was a little crazy to do so, but I never have, you know, headaches. I never have pain points and this thing grows and is reliable to me. That's, that's how I would invest these value add things that uh, I've seen you do and you've done very successful with them that I just don't got the stomach for it. I went through that before and it was just, for me, it was all, it was all a kick in the nuts. And when I got to the finish line, my paycheck was a little mm, softer than I wish it was, you know? And, you know, the older I get and the more I have to spend my time in a bazillion, you know, situations, I just want no headache 
had some return. I'm not going for home runs in year one, two, or three ever anymore. You know, and if I am, I'm putting it into a different into a different world where my expectations were set that like, you know, you might lose all your money today, but maybe you're on the you know on some massive thing that's going to do a 10x or something like that. And that's you know where I'm at with that kind of stuff. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. Maybe we can talk about the future a little bit. You know, what do you think the the future of mobile home parks looks like? Uh, where do you see the economy going with the inflation we're experiencing currently? Sure. So cash flow in real estate is the best hedge against inflation, period. Period. Okay. So from that standpoint, mobile home parks are really well situated. As as we saw during the, the Great Recession, as we saw during the, the COVID mishap, and as what we're now peering into this high inflation kind of environment, mobile homes are still the best situated to uh, to, to not be too affected, right? So we have, you know, the lowest cost basis for for living anywhere. Okay, so you, you, you know, if everyone always needs a place to live, we're that bottom rung. Okay, it doesn't get cheaper than this. Okay, so things will cycle down to us, improve our tenant base. Actually, you know, if we go through a hard thing like what we saw in the Great Recession, okay, and what we've been seeing during the COVID pandemic, the rents are already so there's so much delta between. Uh, a, a lot rent and a two bedroom apartment rent that, you know, there used to be more Delta. Now, now there's about a 50% Delta. Okay. So there's still a lot of room to go up, even if it goes up to 70%. Okay. Which is a massive amount of rent growth, you know, for you as an operator, you're still the cheapest place to live period, you know? So, and, and now that homes are being able to be financed much easier than ever before. And they're not these, these atrocious interest rates like they were a few years ago, you know, I think we're well positioned to still be the best investment vehicle in real estate for any of the major verticals, you know, uh, moving forward, even if we hit some really tough times ahead, which we very well might. I mean, there's a lot of people out there saying, hey, these last couple, you know, issues we had, those were just precursors to a, to a bigger reset that's coming. I'm not saying I buy into it. OK, but this this is some of the stuff that's out there. And even in those events, I think MH will be very resilient. And, you know, the fundamental basis that 20 years ago I learned in Miami that, that, that my dad's friend taught me was you will always need a place to live will remain true forever and ever. And if you're buying well-located real estate, just, you know, location, location, location still remains the number one rule of real estate. So if you get too far out and, you know, you take a low quality deal and you didn't vet your tenants, yeah, you're going to have problems. You're going to have problems, period, you know, especially if you overpaid on that thing and you have too much debt and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But if you keep yourself fairly low levered and you keep yourself, you know, in a secondary or primary city, you know, and you keep your, you keep yourself positioned well with you, with your tenant vetting. I don't see why, even in the worst of economies, that you're still not making more money than, than, than the next guy on your investment. Yeah, I think the best argument I heard recently from a, an economist called John, John Malden, he said that, you know, COVID. I love you know, Malden. I you love him all that. Yeah. Yeah. I read all of this stuff. He's great. Yeah. He's, he's wonderful. So he had a, an interesting email that he sent out where he said that, you know, COVID kind of expedited this artificial intelligence, you know, development and creation and that, you know, who's going to get hurt the most, what jobs are going to be done away with in the beginning when we onboard you know, AI into our day-to-day lives. It's going to be the service jobs, right? And I think we're already seeing that, right? Like you go oh, to yeah. McDonald's, you try to order a burger, you're doing it, you know, on a self-help kiosk, yep. right? Same exactly. thing at Walmart, you know, same thing yep. at other places. So 
robotics and AI are going to change are going to change the the future for us. I mean, they they for better or worse, you're going to have to learn how to accommodate that. And if you're a sixty thousand dollar employee, you know, making you know doing some service industry that really can be replicated, you know, by a robot, I would be kind of cautious about. You know, but isn't that the tenant it. base? Isn't that the mobile home park tenant base? Just playing devil's advocate. Yes and no. Yes and no. Okay, so most of the tenant park uh, tenants, or most of the, the mobile home park tenants, they're they're on a lower wage scale. Okay, they're making twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars a year. Okay, and the robotics they're pretty expensive right now, and so they're more targeting the things that are in that fifty to hundred thousand dollar employee to replace. Now, the, the the kiosk at Walmart and the fast food server maybe a little different story. But you can't really replace the nurse. I mean, eventually you will be able to replace the nurse at the hospital, I have a feeling. But for now, that's probably pretty safe. You're not going to really be able to replace the teacher. You're not going to really be able to replace some of these, you know, $30,000, you know, jobs, the, the police officers, the firemen, things like that. So, and even if even if that does get replaced, you still need a place to live. So you're going to have to, you know, you know, figure that part out. And that's where manufactured housing is still a safety net. The... You know, I think the robotics industry is going to make a remarkable impact on us over the next 10 years. Um, and if I was a, a service worker, I'd be looking at, at kind of up, upgrading my education and my skills to find something that is probably in that world, tending to those robotics or to something that won't be as affected by robotics. You know, but, you know, hey, I'm just some dude, so I don't I don't see the future. So, I, you know, that's uh, yeah. just, who knows? I, who knows what's going to happen, but yeah, that's an interesting perspective. All right. So tell, tell us about like mobile home parks in the market right now. You know, one of my mentors was telling me how it's, we're at a 50 year high in terms of pricing, like yeah, mobile sure. home parks are, you know, selling for top dollar right now. You've sure. sold over 230. Is that two, 230 mobile home parks in 86 this year? Is yeah, that well, absolutely. No, the, the 230 is probably from, you know, five years ago. Um, okay. But, uh, you know, this year alone, we've sold about uh, 50 something transactions in about 86 parks or so. 86 We're about to parks close. this year. We have another amazing. Eight, eight or nine parks to close before the end of the year. That's like another 25 parks or something like that. Wow. You know, so, you know, and our team's only two years old, you know, so we had some yeah. ramp up time. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm probably around 450 parks plus or minus at this point. Wow. Uh, yeah, and, I think I saw the, the 230 just on a on a website or something yeah um, I mean, that's that's an old number i don't always update all my stuff <laughs> that's know? amazing but, uh, yeah it's changed ever yeah. changing but tell me this glenn what are buyers looking for right now when they're looking for mobile home parks and what you know what cap rates are most operators exiting at still all over the place you know i mean cap rates to me i know everybody loves to talk about cap rates and i like to brag about cap rates when i do a little cap rate deal stuff but they're not very relevant in my opinion What's more relevant is your cash on cash. And what's more relevant is, you know, your ability to implement a, a, a business plan to achieve your pro forma. So what we're seeing on stable deals, okay, is, you know, typically somewhere around, you know, a fully stable deal in a fully nice market with no real upside left. Most of the time, if it's not a trophy asset, is going to be somewhere in that, call it four and a half to six cap type of range, depending on the market you're in. Okay. But four and a half, again, that's a little egregious on a fully stabilized deal. And so you got to have some other primers there that, that make it, you know, worth it. Okay. Uh, and you have to have a buyer that's got some, some needs that black swan type of, you know, model type of thing. 
the average buyer still, just like they were before, looking for, you know, 20, 25%, you know, returns. Okay. And, you know, so that's just a, that's just a, a piece of your debt. Okay. So you figure out what your debt is, you add some spread on there and then, you, you know, you engineer to, to that number. I would say if it's a community bank type of deal, we're probably looking at seven to 8% cap rates. Okay. If it's a Fannie Mae type of deal, you know, we're probably looking at, you know, six caps plus or minus on most stabilized stuff. But the, when you add value add in, the cap rates just go out the door. They just go out the door. And, you, you know, you just like we just pit, you know, pitched the deal yesterday. It's a one and a half cap, okay, on a value add, but you're going to take it to a 22 cap, okay? So is it really relevant that it's a one and a half cap? No, it's not, right? You know, so good market, you know, achievable upside, that's, that's much more relevant. The GRM seems to be a very interesting metric that has moved substantially uh, over the last many years. For instance, that Shadowstone deal that we just did was a 19.95 GRM, hands down the highest GRM I've ever sold. Um, you know, whereas most of our GRMs historically have been in that five to eight type of model, okay? And over the last couple of years, they've creeped up. They're more or less around a 10 or 12 right now on most deals that we sell. But the higher quality deals seem to, the higher quality deals or lower occupancy deals, heavy value adds, that's really escalating the GRM. And that's an interesting, you know, model to watch, you know, climb right now. Um, but so when you say GRM, just because most listeners might not oh, know sorry, what that is. Oh, sorry, sorry. Yeah, gross rent multiplier. So you take your, the park makes $100,000 in revenue a year, not profit, in revenue, okay? And you sold that, that park for, you know, a million dollars, that would be a 10 GRM, okay? And so, the, you know, the higher the GRM, the, 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 certainly the lower the cap rate's going to end up being. But that way, when, like, I, I buy a lot of businesses, and businesses often are evaluated off of a gross revenue, okay? Because their expenses might be different than my expenses, so we're looking off of the gross revenue. Um, and that seems to have been a, uh, a metric that, for my whole 20 years in this business seems to hold true. It's, you know, you can kind of look at that and buyers when they price things, they're always looking backwards, you know, or they're trying to convince the seller and the broker that, you know, Hey, nothing in this area is sold for that number and your rents are blah, blah, blah. But as a broker, we're always looking forward. And if I know I got something in my hopper that, you know, is an apples to apples type of transaction for what I'm about to propose and bring out, I'm probably going to relay that, math a little bit you know heavier and then project a few months out because by the time we close you know it can take three to six months to close the deal you know by the time we close the market has already moved and i don't want my owner to feel like sour grapes because now things are selling you know for a higher price than his markets you know so and as a broker it's almost your job to try and manhandle that situation and, and try and prove that you know you know we should be pricing off of six months ago not six months from now um, but as a broker, obviously, I can't afford to do that. I'm a seller's broker. You know, I'm not a buyer's broker. Buyers, you know, I, I tell every buyer I'm one of the most expensive brokers in the industry. It's, it is what it is. Um, but, you know, when when the tables turn and you're ready to sell, it's going to be a very good position for you because I'm going to be able to, to help you get that maximized value. That's awesome, Glenn. How can our listeners get a hold of you if they'd like to do so? Sure, it's very easy. You can go to my website. It's uh, the MH expert.com and on there you can see our contact info you can see all my deals and things like that and here's some of our you know stories and stuff like that 
Uh, all of our blogs are on there as well. You can always just reach out to me directly. My cell phone's 423-483-0492. And I pick up the phone every time it rings. And if I if I don't answer, it means I'm calling you back usually with, you know, by the end of the day, but certainly with 24 hours. My whole team is trained the same way. You know, we don't let people just hang out wondering if we got their message. So if you call us, you'll get a call back and you'll get, you know, at least 15 minutes of our time. Awesome, Glenn. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I want to ask one last question. Sure. What is one tip that you would give to a passive investor looking to get into mobile home parks? You're not going to like it. What comes to your mind first? A, are you sure you want to do this? B, use your money. Don't use somebody else's money. You know, Use your money in a bank on your first deal. Buy a small, perfect, easy-peasy, well-located deal that has no brain damage on it. Just like you go to college before you go to med school, before you become a doctor, consider this your education course. Go buy the 10-unit park in the best location you can with the all-lot rent and the public utilities and the public roads. And you know that way you can learn the right way to do it first before you go and take on a bigger deal with other people's money and heavier value add. Because that's where people screw up. And that's where, that's where things can go real sour. So buy the best located deal with your money that you can afford. Awesome, Glenn. Well, thanks again for coming on the show. Uh, that's it for today, folks. Thank you all so much for tuning in. Thank you, Andrew. Would you like to see Mobile Home Park value add projects in progress? If so, follow us on Instagram at Passive MHP Investing for photos and awesome videos from our recent mobile home park acquisitions. Once again, that's at Passive MHP Investing on Instagram. See you there.